But yeah, Maradona is the little monk and San Gennaro is the ass-grabbing saint of Naples. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Maradona helps creepy old men to cope women. And slips money into their purse to help with fertility. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Flick Lab. It's like, uh, I don't know, a tumor that you can't remove. <laughs> it's Oscar Lab now. It's Oscar Lab now. We're not sure how many Oscar episodes we're gonna do, but at least this one. We're gonna talk uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, at least this one. Like last year, during the Oscars, we made Parasite episode, and that turned out to be a whole flaming peril of peace. But not on, not on our end, but in, in the more general discussion. There was a like, whole record surrounding Parasite. So I guess we are tapping on back on that horse once again. And looking at the foreign films of, of, of the Oscar year. Yeah, of course, it was not my intention to watch Parasite because it was an Oscar contender per se. Well, okay, that helped, but it's a goddamn great movie. Most of most of the or of all the discussion and mostly what people had to say about Parasite last year revolved solely around it being nominated for the best picture. Right, and now we're gonna discuss the the two Oscar nominees out of five in this episode: The Hand of God and Flea from Italy and Denmark, respectively. Yeah, basically those two films that are the easiest to get your hands on too, because as it turns out, this year's Oscar nominees, at least when it comes to Best Foreign, are kind of like ridiculously hard to actually get to see. That is so absurd, Henrik. What? These are supposed to be the, the main contenders from these countries, the, the, the important movie that they want to sell the market their country and all that jazz but for example the japanese contender drive my car well where do i drive that car where, where is it i mean it's been only doing circulations on these festivals and i mean yeah that that is shocking that you can't see this yeah i mean even the finnish film that wish that it would have gotten the nomination cabin number six even that has been actually like easier to see worldwide than drive my car. Yep. And what could be behind that? Like they really don't care about the distribution at this crucial moment. Or for sure, this will be more interesting for for the winner. But I mean, come on, this is the time to sell those movies, if ever. Precisely, and if if the moment goes. The way that even Finland manages to beat you in distribution, in that case, you seriously have done something wrong. Yeah, and Henrik, we're going to talk about our first documentary film. Long time coming. Well, we were not, never supposed to do that, I believe, but we kind of little bit talked about the documentary in the Syrian episode. And now we're going to talk about seriously a documentary film. Yeah, documentary has always been... It's always been kind of in the background of, of our plans for future episodes on this podcast. We have been 
tossing around with the idea that we would do a documentary film episode and then we just never actually did it and we never actually decided what documentary we would have actually watched. Main reason being skill. You would be useful to know something about the subject matter surrounding any documentary. And that is a big headache. I think even more background work than we would usually do for fictional products. It it would most definitely. And the second big question is that would be that what documentary we then would see. Documentary films are kind of a like a word of their own. A whole bunch of documentaries being made around the world, globally, constantly. Even in Finland, we, we do a godless amount of documentaries every year. But then it's a, like a whole nine yards of what documentaries you ever actually get a chance to see. Even like if, if you are Finn in Finland and you want to check out Finnish documentaries, most of the documentaries you've done in any given day, year are the types that you don't get the chance to actually see them anywhere. They just end up in, in circulation in festivals and in in some small cir- circles. And unless the Finnish national broadcasting station Yle manages to choose to pick up those documentaries, Yle also being the biggest producer of documentaries in Finland. Like Yle is the only chance that you get a good healthy opportunity to see any given documentary. And that's kind of a situation that repeats in every single nation, like French documentaries. Most of them you never actually see. You, Hopefully, you, at best possibility, you, you get to see like a handful in a year. If you really have like the make the effort that I'm gonna bloody well see some French documentaries this year. And with that in mind, mostly like when it comes to the smorgasbord of documentaries that you we, we could talk about that we could approach it mainly would just be like like the chosen hot ticket documentaries from US like Blackfish or Michael Moore documentaries mm. or something like this i mean even today's film Flea which is is the documentary that you alluded to pre- just uh, 5 seconds ago even that is something that most likely we wouldn't have had the chance to see, except now that it's a contender for the best foreign Oscar. Fortunately, a film that has been spread all over the all over the services on the internet, so there's no uh, there's no problem accessing this one. So Denmark happened to do something right for one reason or another. All right. Well, do we want to start with Flea or? The hand of God, I guess. The fli- flea. Uh, yeah, flea works well. Also known as yeah, I too like watch with Basir very much. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Well, I'm not gonna say that this is. Like, I'm not blaming the film for anything. I'm not holding this against flea. But everyone who is going to watch flea is going to immediately draw a comparison. To Wards with Bashir, which was the 2008 Israeli documentary film that also used the technique of having most of the documentary being drawn and then mixing the draw the, the cartoon footage with a live action footage, very much actually in the same vein that 
flea does it. Like you, the, the live action footage that you have in both cases is archival footage. Except Flea's closing shot, the, the couple walking into the bushes. I would guess that that's a reconstruction. But that too is filmed in a way of like, like a 90s video camera. Like the same quality. So at least pretends to be an archival footage. They both films use the archival footage for the exact same purpose. It's to break the wall between the movie and the audience. Kind of a, since most of the documentary is done in cartoonish manner, it kind of the, the, the usage of real footage then breaks this invisible wall between the movie and the audience. Not the fourth wall, but let's say fifth wall or seventh wall. And kind of helps to ground in the viewer's mind the fact that the story that the viewer has been watching is a real one. And both stories also revolve heavily around the, the topic of, of memory and memorizing the past. In, in words, the memory is a mystery. The main character has this, this kind of a gap in, in his memories. There's time periods that he does not remember, and the movie follows him as he tries to piece the, put the pieces together and figure out what happened in that trauma, traumatic moment, which cuts to black. And in Walt's the answer is the main character took part in, in, well, not genocide, but partly genocidal violence. And in Flea, we are dealing with, the main character does not have um, amnesia. But the, the whole kind of a framing device of Flea is the fact that the main character's filmmaking friend is making a documentary about the, the main character's past. So he asks the main character to reminisce on what happened to him, like what was his childhood and how he got into Denmark. And then the main character starts to walk the, the past again. That, that forms the film, uh, Flea's story. So. There are, like, once again, I have to stress this out. I'm not saying that Flea does anything wrong. And it's not like what's with, with Brasir has, like, the sole right to, to use use the drawn imagery and kind of a play with the image this way. That's nowhere, that's not my point here. But like I mentioned, Anyone who will see Flea will immediately think about Waltz with Pasir. It's kind of a, like unavoidable. Waltz was such of a tremendously huge th thing when it came out 2018 that there's no way in hell that Flea can do that. And not like th th that comparison not being drawn. While also in the back of your head, you might remember many war or Middle Eastern related war documentaries of the recent years. The Return to Homs, which is not really about the refugees, but about the war in Syria itself. The film that we have today doesn't really hold that, that feeling of having watched something particularly new. We have heard these stories and as heartbreaking as I may sound like, Yes, we have seen something like this before. It doesn't have that that striking um, feeling that you get when you see something that you've never seen before. But on the other hand, yes, this film is very well 
executed. There's nothing wrong about it, right? There's nothing wrong wrong with it, and like I I agree with you. Well, when it comes to Middle Eastern parts of the film, kind of like the opening beats of the narration, when the family has to flee their home, that kind of like you said, not not really not really striking. What actually struck me more was the part of the film that takes place in Russia and showcases perhaps once more the the overall corruption and the broken brokenness of of the Russian system like mm. to me that was like the, the most gut-wrenching moments of the film and then it is up when they finally one by one they get to escape from Russia yeah the time in Russia when the communism had officially just ended and a little bit after so yeah, it probably was really tumultuous times yeah indeed from a refugee perspective and speaking of refu- refugees i strongly suggest and once again this is not something that i say that is is wrong or bad or, or i'm gonna hold, hold this against the film but i would make the case that this movie would not have been made like the filmmakers would not have had the enthusiasm to make See all of this trouble to make this film without the 2014-2015 European refugee crisis. Yeah, like, uh, uh, certainly it, it somehow partly influenced the, the how how the project got going. I mean, it it had been on the back of the head of the director Rasmussen for about what, 15 years, but yeah, the refugee crisis and everything it it seemed to come together there and then when finally the director got the idea in some event that yeah we we could do this in animation you know so the the person telling his story as a refugee wouldn't need to show his face or make some kind of a smudgy image or alter the well actually his own voice is in in there but yeah he's able to remain quite anonymous by just using this animation which, well, if I can already jump to it, is an interesting way. And, and you have to be so careful, right? So delicately animate this piece so that you do not get the, the emotions wrong. Because that's a huge part. And actually, well, the director has said that the animation even enhances the, the, the feelings and makes it more cinematic. Which is f- for sure true. But there is just this tiny little lining that if you would make it too much of a fantasy accidentally even you have to be pretty careful with those those facial expressions right and the animation itself looks pretty interesting and so different because it's tied up to the clearly to the real footage that they have filmed and so all kinds of random noises happen people bringing their attention to things that are behind them and all kinds of this natural jazz so what did you think about it did did it kind of distance you or pull you in or what happened uh, for me it w- did have that that pulled me in effect yeah. and i was kind of taken away by the fact how well the film managed to sell a complex emotion despite the fact that when it comes to the animation the animation itself is pretty simplistic and I don't mean this in in the negative. 
but like the the facial expressions themselves they don't have that many lines the faces all together it's it's few lines that form like the nose the mouth the eyebrows the eyes it's not like this this super detailed i'm gonna draw five million lines and and use all of them to form an emotion no this uses like 20 lines to to form a complex a complex emotion and that's actually pretty damn effective and also i'm surprised that they were actually draw it so well that they managed to to have such a complex animation with so few lines and you've been really critical of animation in this podcast before and i was interested to hear your thoughts on the animation and yeah it's kind of like more subdued more realistic in a way and then it also does this more fantastical or indeed like memory memory like shots where people are all all smudgy or walking in the cover of darkness when there's snow hitting your face and we just see some kind of blurry figures that are shaking in the foreground so maybe increasingly as the film goes on it becomes more blurry or dreamy memory-esque what do you think uh yeah yeah i i do agree with you then again just, you know, to be the, the stable critic here and to say something mean about the animation once again, it did also at the same time remind me a hell of a lot about the the cheap Euro comics that we have going on in basically all over EU. Especially especially the EU mandated Euro comics. Yeah, I will I will say something uh, in the benefit of you. Like Never ever have I heard in this podcast you utter any kind of uh, explicit praise. Like you, you never hear you say, "I love this film from the bottom of my heart." And <laughs> <laughs> there's always something wrong, and you always keep the critical head. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But yeah, I also, if you can say that, <laughs> I enjoyed the Russia part quite a lot and, and seeing the police behavior in that country quite horrifying sometimes you might think if all of these stories are true or if indeed i mean remembers recalls all of these events quite correctly but yeah and something that i felt that that was knocking on on my head when i was looking at this is is kind of comparing this to some of the crazy stories that i've heard from Kind of my friends uh, who have been in, for example, in the Iraqi war. These are the kind of stories that they tell. Yeah. And another po- huge part, which I do believe plays into that effect or behavior is like, well, just the way how the film itself actually states it out. That in that situation, you may actually have to like, Keep on repeating the same lie. Much like Amin has to do ever since he eventually escapes or flees from Russia. He's given a false background and this false story of his entire family is supposed to have died. Just so that when he comes in, in eventually into contact with authorities, they would not send him back. Yeah, that kept me thinking. Like they had so so many chances of getting sent back to their home country, but somehow miraculously survived these 
situations. Which of course also has like the, the turn over effect. That, well, since I mean himself states that he is somewhat of an unreliable narrator throughout the film. Uh, like, he, he promises that what he tells you now is is the truth, the whole truth and nothing to it. But at the same time, he also admits that he has been lying for the authorities, for his friends, even even for his, his beloved ones for years before the documentary starts. Hmm. Which once again raises the question, can we actually be 100% certain that he is telling the truth now? Which or was a, is this still for some reason yet another lie? Which was a moment of kind of pulling the rug under the audience's feet when he told the audience that, yeah, they, they are, my family is still completely intact, living all around Europe. Not dead, not dead. So I kept thinking, okay, why? But I haven't maybe given this much thought before, but of course. And well, I wonder, I have to wonder, like in asylum centers, how many of these officials are aware of the repercussions if they would kind of give out all the information about themselves? Because yeah, these people, these officials might talk about the fact that the, these are just unbelievable people that you, you can't get to the truth with these guys, no matter how much you try. And they are just, many of them are just liars and that's it. But this film gives great context on that. Why somebody would do that. Yeah, and, and just so that we are not just shitting on, on you know, pe pe people working on asylum centers, another thing that has to be remembered is that even though the worker, him or herself, might be on the side of the asylum seeker and might know that, yeah, this is a guy who who most likely has gone through some pretty horrible shit and is deserving of the of the refugee status and asylum. It might also be that the bureaucracy is of such that it just couldn't be given to the refugee. So it's not always not not every you know turned over decision and we are sending you back decision is not made out of spite. Mm -hmm. or some type of I don't believe any of you goddamn liars type of logic, it might also be like, I wouldn't want to do this, but I kind of have to because rules and regulations are what they are, and I just, my hands are bound. And those for those people who might wonder sometimes, like, why overwhelmingly often the refugees are male and not female? Well, yeah, here, here you can see why. It's an extremely dangerous road to take, and it's good to test the waters, no pun intended, uh, first with the males, right? Yeah, there is an, and another factor which most likely plays a big role here is the fact that there is a kind of, kind of a long, long play going on, where the end goal very much may be that we send like the first kid to another country, that kid will land a job, get some money and help the rest of the family also. Like later, la later on, like mm. happens in, in Flea, that their oldest brother has been sent to Sweden, uh, where he now works as a, as a cleaner, just in order to gather enough money to ba basically be able to buy the safe passage for the rest of the family. So that's also one factor that plays here. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose we are very much for the animation, how it was 
done and, and many are uh, so in the end well let's spell it out did, did you feel the the emotional connection with, with this 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 film and, and the people in it uh, because that's that's the huge part of the film that has to work i did yeah. um of course but, but who feels and how much that's a personal question so i can't promise you that like i i felt the most yeah i'm i'm there with 100 percent feels but i have... but yeah the flea did manage to win me over yeah i mean it, it feels a, a little strange sometimes how we treat these movies as some kind of a just simple entertainment products, disposable pleasures. And we have something like Oscars and then we have like five nominees this year and, and we put them next to each other, stack them there. And, and then some critics somewhere says that, well, yeah, uh, everybody was praising it so, 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 so much. So I had huge expectation. I went to see it and no, it wasn't as good as the other one that I saw. So, I hope it doesn't win. I mean, c- come on. It's still like a person who came forward and told you like a traumatic life story for you. And now it's here being treated as some kind of a disposable object. And some part of me, though I understand that, I, some part of me just makes me a little bit sick in my stomach. Yeah, again, there's a lot in Oscars that makes you sick, sick in your <laughs> stomach. That's like the most overhyped and most meaningless movie award that you can have. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of that in these episodes. I believe uh, Henrik has never been a big fan of the Oscars. And I I was I was like when I was a kid, uh I when I was a teenager, I even used to tape record the the Oscar gala when it aired in in Finnish television. Hmm. I I would I would record that the gala and and watch it from the tape the next day. Same. But as as time goes on and I guess as I as and as I get get older and older i kind of just give less and less of a shit about oscars what about the the golden globes at, at least if there's something to say, be said about golden globes i believe they're always before the the oscar ceremony and then oscars perhaps have has kind of like a way to 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 copy what has been happening in the golden globes maybe we should follow golden globes as, as well at some point perhaps i am like i i don't follow golden globes i don't I don't even follow Gans, really, but but I when, when it comes to prizes and when it comes to nominations, I do actually keep put more weight on who wins the Golden Globe right. or who who wins Bomb Dior. But perhaps like you, I'm uh, utterly bored when I go to some web page and I I try to read about some film and like sixty seven percent of that page is well that's specific specific, but uh, most of the article is just about how many nominations and and wins this movie has garnered around the world and i could not give less of a shit ah uh, yeah basically what every movie's wikipedia page is exactly yeah you, you you just scroll it down and you're going to like you're bound to meet the goddamn excel spreadsheet about nominated nominated one pending yeah absolutely especially when there's no other material to speak of. It's it's literally just a like a put into sentences Excel table of what this movie won, and it's it's unbelievable. It goes on for fucking several pages. Yeah, basically like Flea's Wikipedia page. The plot synopsis is like two lines of text. Then you have like release information, which is one paragraph. Then you have like critical 
reception, which is like what Metacritic gave, gave it, or what Rotten Tomatoes gave it. And then you have awards and nominations, and it's just, you know, Oscars and spreadsheet. Then again, we wouldn't be talking about this film if it had not received the exposure that it has. So there's the exposure part for good shit out there sometimes. And yeah, this was good shit. And something that the director said about the whole process is that indeed, you know, when you create an animation, you put the movie together before you work on the animations. And with a documentary footage, you shoot the footage before you edit it. And there you become a slave to your footage. Kind of paraphrasing. So it's, and unless you are a Hollywood blockbuster and a Marvel feature film. Yeah, or, or, or if you have a, a subscription to Adobe stock. <laughs> they, they, we fixed the CGI in post school of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, you don't often get a situation in, in a documentary unless it's like a super big production and you put CGI pe- people all over the place. But you know, you have more leeway. You can get your close-ups that you need on the way, and yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Another thing, of course, is that you couldn't have really. There's, it's really hard to tell the story in any other way except re-enacting, which is kind of shit because you can't get to the locations anyway. And why not just make it more of like a memory and and an animation? And once again, we are on the gay territory in this podcast i'm well i'm fine with that and i i did this wasn't <laughs> my intention i didn't even know what the heck flea is really about except something about you know a story about refugees but yeah here we are here we go again yeah god, god damn i actually i i've been biting my tongue <laughs> not to ask ask from you exactly how, how you felt about the fact that the film also on, on top of Having like the the refugee plotline, you also in the same exact same main character, you also have the LGBT plot going on. I I started to watch the film and and they hits the point where, it, or immediately in the beginning of the film, you understand that the main character is either a homosexual or then he's transsexual. Yeah. And I was immediately thought, oh, yeah, this is why Curry picked this one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I, have, I have been, you know, doing my best not to ask you exactly how did you feel about the, the gay subplot in, in Flea. Because I actually am not entirely certain, was that perhaps even a bit too much? Like, you have the main character who is not just a refugee and not just someone who well is not an illegal alien but whose legal status is based upon a lie but who is also a homosexual well you think that the movie is going to have a lot of troubles by the end but then again i think it pretty well ties together the the past the whole storytelling part and then the present day and given that Rasmussen's goal and clearly the the idea of the film is to tell, tell a story of kind of a homelessness the, the state of being or having home nowhere the state of being a refugee and it it is kind of like a homeless state and not being comfortable with yourself and having all these secrets and lies and all of this stuff bothering you and a relationship suffering for that etc but by the end 
thematically, fortunately for the director, there was this thing going on where the couple was buying a new house in the middle of nowhere. Now, I don't know what is Amin's true thoughts still <laughs> on that location, <laughs> but he did settle there. There, there was, I had to, I have to say, there was a really, really long pause at the airport before they hugged each other. So, well, partly kidding, but anyway. So I think he got to the zone where he's comfortable about himself and has found a, hopefully a home in the middle of nowhere in Denmark. Don't you think that works thematically? Uh, well, now that, that you put it like that, yeah, I guess it works thematically. Um, mostly I was just thinking that is this, is this trying a bit too hard to make the case that you are talking about minorities and your main character is a member of a minority? Because mm. he's, he's a member of a minority, minority of a minority. So that the whole point, oh my god, to look exactly how much how humane the refugees are, especially in a film that comes, you know, post the European immigration crisis. I I kind of was mixed. Do I like it or does it feel too much that the director is just pushing? Say, oh, look at the humanity! How can you hate these people? Look at all the minority cards playing around Gambit. Oh. Yeah, but I did like that there was this LGBT theme and found it even maybe overtly, overly impressive that the father of Amin was so forthcoming about the, the, the outage from the, closets, the closet that he just took his son directly to the nearest gay club and here, enjoy. <laughs> that was his acceptance speech or, yeah. That's how he showed that this is not a problem. I wonder if that was the case, but I guess I shouldn't really question his story too much. It's I feel it's a little bit rude. Yeah, with the way how basically the, the gay subplot in the end gets resolved, I too kind of did like it very much. It's kind of like me saying this now, it's kind of a repeating my point from our Han episode. But I do think that, well, since so many gay narratives in movies solely revolve around the theme how being gay is extremely dangerous, the whole world hates you and it's immediate death sentence if anyone ever finds out, it's, in my opinion, it's nice and it's even healthy to also get the other type of narrative. Like you get in Flea, like you get in Han, where the, in the end the resolution is yeah, we accept that. And there is no hatred. Dear God, we really need Henrik, Henrik. Let's let's do a lesbian film next. <laughs> a, a little bit too much gayness going on here. Well, well, Paul Verhoeven just made Benedetta. <laughs> there you go. Yep. You know, I'm I'm all gay, all game. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> <laughs> And that's Jesus me is already shrieking. But yeah, I'm all game for, you know, doing Benedetta. And even doing more Paul Verhoeven. We haven't touched the dude on this podcast. <laughs> well, you were looking for some easier episodes, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could babble on and on about this film, but I think that's, that's what I really wanted to say. That's it. I, I guess we have 
covered mostly our bases already. Yeah. And we still have one more film to go, so yeah. with extremely handy segue, let's go to the hand of God. <laughs> uh, well, dear listeners, this is like the straight version of Call Me By Your Name. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if, if you are trying to, to kind of elevate the hand of God or if you are trying to downplay Call, call Me By Your Name. It's not a comment on that, but uh, there is a comment on quality level. And I guess we're going to talk about that as well, because Hannu, my friend Hannu Bjarkpakka, said that Paolo Sorrentini is the Paolo Coelho of cinema and gave it half a star. And while, while, while I, I'm, I don't hate the film that much, I can 100% see where that opinion is coming from. Like Paolo, Co- Paolo, Co- Paolo Coelho, <laughs> writer. <laughs> Is, is, a, is a hot ticket writer who, in, in the recent years, he has garnered somewhat of a backlash for the way how his, his books are written, or what type of books he does write. There is this one, there's, there's this Finnish meme that, that I once saw. It's like one of those moments where, uh, memes where you, where you have the famous person's picture and then you have a quote. Air quotations mark a quotation from from that famous person. So there's a Paul Coelho version of that meme where the quotation is that roughly goes that I write this shit only to or I write this flat shit mainly just to fuck with you. <laughs> and that's a sentiment and take on Coelho's work. I I haven't read his the mass books, but. From what I've heard and what I've gathered, that's a sentiment that I kind of can understand when it, where, from where it stems from and how it formulates on, and I can actually see the exact same statement and the same mentality formulating around Paolo Sorrentino's films, or at least especially, you know, The Hand of God. The sentiment overall of Coelho, yeah, like you kind of put it, is that his products are kind of on the surface and don't really go all the way there where it would be considered, you know, proper art, that they take shortcuts and they are just really lazy-ass material. I haven't read any of his books, but I will also say that I haven't seen any other movies from Paolo Sorrentino. How about you, Henrik? Me neither. Uh, Like, I do know of his films. I do know about uh, this must be the place and and the greatest beauty which were films that had a relative hype in Finland when they came out and I have taken that even today enjoy some type of cult following or following but I haven't actually checked those films out so for me to this is the first Sorrentino feature. More than that, this is the first Sorrentino product, an art piece for me, because I also completely missed on The Young Pope, which also was some type of a hot ticket TV drama show with Jude Law. Yeah, so I I really didn't feel that this is surface or pretentious or anything like that. Well, maybe 
to a degree I can see where that's coming from. <laughs> but, 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 this is pretty rough giving like half a star. Letterboxd or not. <laughs> because, because... It's, it, it's, it's rough and, and the, the comment really fires off some shots. Right. So, I mean, when I watched this for the first time some weeks ago, I I wasn't blown away every part of the way, but when it got to the ending, I was ready to give it five stars on Letterboxd. So, <laughs> what is going on here? <clears throat> what is I, I don't know, because I, I, on my end, I'm willing to... Like meet it, meet the film halfway, like two and a half, maybe three stars. Okay. But that's about it. I do feel that I I wouldn't say that the film necessarily is is pretentious, but I do think that it is somewhat on the surface level side of things, and I do think that the film altogether has actually quite noticeably flat note. And I don't know if that's Sorrentino's style, like I said, I've missed absolutely everything from the dude before before the hand of God, but I I, I didn't hate the movie. Yeah. That's not, not what I'm saying, but the movie also just kinda didn't win me over. Yeah. I, I felt that the caricature nature of the film in the first half or so is quite intentional. And you have to kind of run with the theme of, oh, everything is so picture perfect and then con contrast it with the darkness that happens after the deaths in the family. Spoiler, spoiler. And, I, you know, this is a memory kind of in a way that Flea is. So, so I think you can take some liberties that these characters are so, so caricaturic. And it's just a collection of rich memories. It may not be exactly moving on on the pace that you would like all the time but it really just is if you accept it as a collection of rich memories and and kind of stop thinking about what is happening on, on screen in, in that sense it, it, i think it works much better than for you expecting something traumatic to happen all the time which might have been hannu's problem and hannu by the way <coughs> this this is Quite of a statement, also considering that this is the director's personal story, his autobiography, basically. So, of course, some elements have been changed here and there, but holy cow. Are, are we... Uh, I just heard that we want pick to up, pick up of fights outside of the podcast now, Alice, so... I, I'm not sure. I want to get <laughs> away from this. <laughs> we are calling out this one opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, moving on from that. I couldn't resist. Um... Yeah, uh, you mentioned the memory, like the cats out of the bag, finally. They're, they're, like, the whole big deal with the Hand of God, narrative-wise, is the meta-narrative that goes hand-in-hand hand with the film. What you have in, in the movies is a narrative of one teenager's summer, when stuff happens. Mm. And the twist here it's, is that it's not stated on the film directly, but that this is the director uh, revisiting his that summer from his teenage years. And same locations to an extent. Yeah. So this is, it, it's not documentary, but it's dramatizing a real event from the director's life. And on this sense, I kind of draw a parallel to Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. Like when, when it comes to the narrative uh, building blocks, and partly the framing also. Like in, in Sama Paradiso, what you have is 
an, uh, a person who works on film has now grown older, comes back to his childhood place, relives some memories, and that's but that's basically what, like that that's the the framing device of cinema paradiso. And with the meta narrative of the hand of God, you have a director who comes back to to his his childhood home, this childhood city town, and through the act of making this movie relives memories and moments from his past. In both narratives, the past somehow leads into the main the main character wanting to be working on film. In Samaradi, so the main character becomes was it producer or does he become a director? Yeah, he wants, wants to become a director. Yeah, okay, yeah. Samaradi, so main character becomes a director at the end. In the hand of God, the main character becomes the director at the end. So even though I'm not, I'm, and I'm not saying that these are like the same film, obviously not. Mm. But with the meta narrative of the Hand of God, you kind of see the similar framework or the similar type of blueprint working around the movie itself. Mm. I was I wasn't completely maybe blown away with that film uh, in a way that. It, sometimes I felt that it even was begging the audience that please respect me and see all this this golden memory and just love me for it. It felt a little like that sometimes. I, I don't think the hand of God is doing that. But anyway, I, I think there's a lot to be missed in this film. And I wonder if everybody is able to kind of understand all the points in the film. I sure as hell I didn't. But I did some reading, I did some, I checked some essays on the film analysis. Well, I got even more confused. But I know what I saw in the film when I first watched it by myself. I wasn't as blown away on the second watch. Maybe I wasn't in the same frame of mind at all. But anyway, I think the film is asking, what kind of like a the flea question? Where is your home? Because sometimes you no longer feel that you are belonging to a place where you've been. And I think travelers understand this very well, or people who travel all the time for, for work, that we have discussed in this uh, Korean gay episode, uh, also this whole thing. Um, and, you know, and we personally, we have discussed that we have been moving all around Finland, I've been moving around a little bit more around Europe, blah, blah, blah. And... Sometimes when you get too familiar with your neighborhood, then it will become un uncomfortable, kind of a, surrounded by all these uncomfortable emotions and memories. Even if something was once picture perfect, well, then when you continue living there after something horrific happened, or if it's just a collection of unfavorable events throughout your life, freaking living in the eastern part of Helsinki in a suburb for 20 years, of course, there's always the good and the bad. Then you take a break from that environment and you might return to it or you might leave from there for, for the reason that just the surroundings are haunting you. All those emotions and feelings come back again and again and again. And after a while, it gets really tiresome. Why do I have to fill my head with all of this noise when I could kind of start all over somewhere anew? A fucking theme that we have talked about in the elephant sitting still as well. Uh, so there is de definitely the elephant element here. Everything went 
sideways in that film for the characters and they all had the collective idea that yeah we gotta get the fuck out of here to search for something better they may not find it but hopefully they do there's hope and kind of hand of god does the same thing what do you think and just like with with ele- elephant sitting standing still <laughs> because god damn if the name wasn't all over the place with that film. Did, did you check the email internal email that we <laughs> here it was also written elephant standing still and i laughed <laughs> god it's hard to get right I, I, I'm, i'm fairly certain that at some point the, the elephant was lying still also <laughs> But 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 just like with with elephant, <laughs> I I once again I'm not actually blown away by the film. Yeah. I'm I'm really sorry, Gary, but the hand of God, it it's just like I I don't hate the movie. That's not what I'm saying. But the film just didn't click. My and I guess my main problem because I don't want to just you know just play the cop out and say that well something that I can't define just didn't work. I do try to aim at least a bit higher than that. So I would say say that my main problem with the hand of God is that I never actually ever felt the main character. Or more specifically, I never actually felt that the main character did anything throughout the movie. In no way connecting with any of the elements that you have or actually contributing in any way to the narrative of the movie. And partly, partly, I, I do understand why this is. This is the director revisiting his his own life, and most of our lives are not, like, they, they don't work like film narratives, where you make super important choices, and you, you kind of can see how, I did this, so it led into this, etc., etc., etc. Most of our lives consists of basically just stuff that happens to us and us somehow like responding to what has happened. And especially in this case, when we are dealing with the main characters' teenage years, and teenage years being the time period when most of us are lost we don't know what we want to do we don't know what we want to achieve we have no idea what we actually want in any any way in any area and we just feel like we are isolated and separated from absolutely everything and the world is just something that revolves around us so i do get Like I, I'm not saying that saying that the director fucked up and just somehow accidentally made a main character that does not contribute. It most definitely it was a stylistic choice, but at the same time, what we have is a main character that does not truly contribute in well into anything. Mm. There is no one thing that the main character actually does that has some type of an effect. The effects that happen play out in the movie's narrative are something that just happen around the main character and happen completely oblivious of the main character. Like take the the, the smuggler character, for example. Yeah. Main main character sees the smuggler once, then meets him at the football game. Then has a night out with the smuggler. The smuggler then does not answer the main character's call. The smuggler lands in lands in jail. Nothing is in any way 
a result of something that the main character has done, not on emotional level and not on physical level. And also the, the another like like the major plot point that happens in the film, the, the death of the parents, the main character has absolutely nothing to do with it, doesn't actually strike him to do anything. Except perhaps at the end of the film when he meets the, the movie director. And the, the director says our main character that stay here, stay home. How can you look at all, all this around you and say that you don't find narratives? We should team up, we should start to make movies. And that's the moment when main character actually finally somehow reacts into something that is being said or done to him. Yeah. And he does exactly the opposite that the director dude says. The director dude says, don't go to Rome, or the assholes go to Rome. The film ends up with our main character taking a train to Rome. There's so many things that you just said and went through. But I agree that the, the relation with the smuggler was not engaging. Half of the movie I was wondering, who the hell is this guy and why is this so important? Or isn't, as it's a memory and you can do everything, right? But I think that the director, whatever he does in this film, is extremely intentional. It's not a matter than, does it work for us? Do we connect with that? Does it make sense to the audience? Oh yeah, it's it's most definitely, it's, it's intentional. Yeah. And my problem with that intention is that it's just, it won't work for me, at least not in this film in particular. Yeah, I, I noticed that there there is this, still that feeling that you're trying to identify with these characters, and especially the lead character. And kind of find find the core, and for like the first half of it, it's just events happening, like you said, around the character, and the character is kind of in the center, but isn't in the center. It's a collection of people, and that is intentional as well, for sure. And he kind of becomes more central after the tragedy. But yeah, yeah, I can't side with you on on the statement that he becomes more central. Like I, like I said, the main character did not click with me, and I never felt... I also didn't feel that he somehow becomes more central, or he becomes more participating in anything that happens in the film. Yeah, yeah, everything just revolves around him for the most part. I do agree with that. I wonder if that's, I, that's the reason that the movie feels a little weird. I would say that that's the main that that would be the like the main reason why the, why the film feels well well in a in a lack of better word yeah. weird yeah and I I can't believe that that feeling may also be like uh, be the reason why some people just really don't like this movie because I didn't like that feeling. I, I was constantly just way, almost yelling at the scream and yelling at the main character to, to do something, to react to, to something. He, at least he partly reacts to the fact that his parents die. Like, you, you, don't, you don't get a, a strong reaction, but at least you get, get something. Like, it, it sparks him to have, have a discussion with his older brother at the very end of the film that they should, like, start doing plans and start think what they want to do with their lives. But that is followed by like the, the discussion with the director, where the director like point blank asks our main character that what you want to do, what is your passion, what drives you, what you want to achieve. And the 
best answer my own character can give is, I don't know, maybe movies. And once again, I, I get it. I get it. It's a teenager. He's a teenager. Uh, you don't have those answers when you are a bloody teenager. I do get it. But at but, the same time, we are stuck with a main character whose best answer to the whole question, what you want to do in a film that is supposed to center around him. And the best answer he can give is, eh, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and know. it's just as aggravating as, as it is to talk to a teenager in a real life when you actually try to have a conversation with the pastor and you try to ask what you want to do, what you want to achieve, what you want to become. And the answers are, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, the moment when he meets the director is uh, definitely a kind of defining moment. He has been talking about becoming a director and now even more so because he feels determined with that because he he's, he's now an orphan and reality is lousy, as he says. So he wants to pursue fictional stories instead to kind of get over it and change the environment around him he wants to go to a different city the director at the same time makes a good point you know, do you have fucking anything to tell do you have a story and then he finally says i do have a story but the story is kind of lame what was it yeah even he can't actually tell what his story is he, yeah. he may just give a couple of plot points yeah 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 and and and, and, and the director has kind of a point like I think what he's trying to say as well, what I what I thought, what I felt anyway, is that now that you are here in this shithole town, as described by the old lady with the giant pussy, <laughs> uh, I I think this is a moment where Fabia can decide whether he's gonna stick with with the town and just get over it and change his mindset. And via this changing of his mindset come up with these stories. I mean, even if you're in living in the suburbs of Helsinki, Kontula, whatever, you can make it. You definitely can make creative stories about Kontula. Uh, so you can find the, the beauty or the ugliness, whatever emotion you're seeking from whatever place you're in usually. So, But that would have been an interesting way to go. Just stick with the place and try to adapt into this new situation as an orphan. But yeah, the, the kind of the, the actions and the motivations from the, the point of view of telling a really cohesive and easily understandable story, it's maybe not always there. It's very much also to this, this individual interpretation, how you feel, I guess. Anyway, he decides to leave his city and is on the way to what is the shithole place that he is heading to next? Rome. Rome. And... Yeah, I suppose he takes the train to Rome. I'm not sure if he's going to be a director anymore or he just gave up that idea because that asshole director said all the things that he does not believe in and also the thing that his parents left him. And I felt that that was the moment that he said to himself, like, look, that there is nobody who can tell me what is the right answer or what I should do with my life. Maybe I just have to decided on my own and not listen to other people they can never understand my situation so just feel what what feels right for me right but speaking of speaking of pussies speaking and of pussies. listening other people on what you should not do you know <laughs> well um that also an interesting plot point in the film 
all this this lead character's fascination with older women, especially his goddamn aunt. Yeah, but but the, hey, the fuck. But hey, Auntie was there only to <laughs> help to get over the first time, right? Just giving him a service, and now he. No, is... no, 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 no. I I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, the Patricia. Yeah, no, I yeah, I I mean Patricia, the, the yeah. one lady that gets perved the most in this yeah. film. The the woman who is so men- mentally ill that she just can't keep clothes on. But that's another thing. Is she mentally ill, or is it more like, for example, in the beginning of the film, it's depicted in a way that it's not reality. It's, it's some kind of a memory or hallucination of the lady or whatever the hell it is. Well, she might not be mentally ill. And I, I most definitely, oh God, do I hope that that's not really the point. Because stating that sexually active women are just mentally ill is kind of a, well, a fucking yikes. But it still does not remove the fact that every character in the film constantly qualifies Patricia as someone who is mentally ill and at the final moments with Patricia she eventually eventually gets locked up in I guess some type of a mental health clinic. Yeah, but there was one critic critic that said that maybe the the behavior as we see of the woman in the film is not really what happened but would be more of the memory of Fabia. Okay, okay, this is getting into like really really maybe ridiculous level of deep reading but it could be also like the reactions of the woman maybe it's not that patricia really cares for fabia in in any way or is even sexually attracted but it's just the way that fabia remembers it (laughs) but nevertheless she is in the asylum yeah but here's another critic who will state out that it was somewhat irritating that every single female every woman character in this movie in the end of the day, only serves to preserve and in strengthen the sexuality of the main character. Like every woman in the movie, except the main character's sister, who constantly locks herself in the bathrooms, even to a such of a length that I guess at the end she locks herself in the bathroom for for weeks, for a month, and the movie completely forgets her and until in the in the like like at the very end when she finally emerges from the bathroom. But And is crying like a baby. And is crying like a baby. But that sister notwithstanding, basically every female character in the movie is in service of basically proving the sexuality of the main character. Like Patricia is there so, so to show some tit and for the main character to be be perving on her. The one lady who is with the Sheik is there just so that the main character can point out, hey, nice lady, and be caught on, you know, on that behavior. The, the granny on on the upstairs, she's like the, the most, most clear example of this, because at the very end, her only only reason basically to exist like her function in the story is that she takes the main character's cherry his virginity just so that the next that well the first time is now over and done with and the next time the main character can finally actually have sex with someone that he truly likes so like i'm 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 like doing this service to you so that you can go around and fuck women 
And I'm just kind of looking at the film and being like, Paolo, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> everything, everything in the end revolving around the main character, sexually at least. And, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I, I guess that's the main reason why he goes to Rome. It's, it's not to become, to become the next hotshot director. He just realized that there are more women that he hasn't yet fucked or perved upon that are not his sister. Yeah, well, Soren, just a correction for the earlier. Well, if this is indeed very autobiographical story of, of these moments of the of the director, then of course the director would become the director in in Rome. Yeah, and most likely this is seeing how the director also made the documentary about making the film. The Hand of God, which is also on Netflix, it lasts like eight minutes, and it's just the main, the the director just walking around, you know, his his own hometown, old hometown, and yeah. just looking at st- stuff like the statue of Maradona and explaining, like, yeah, Maradona is hot shit around here, and that's that's a whole goddamn documentary. It's its own separate thing, and it's on Netflix, and it lasts for eight minutes, and he doesn't actually say anything about making of the film. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the Maradona thing. Maradona, who was ready to, to, to sue the filmmakers for using the title, but then he was ensured that, no, 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 this is, this is not a football documentary. <laughs> We're doing something completely different, kind of funny. What about the little monk character? Did you figure out what the heck is going on with that? <laughs> no! <laughs> It's 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 some type of a, like like a cinematic element that just comes full circle. He he's he's at the beginning of the film. We we have a little monk that serves no purpose whatsoever. This is like the most fantastical element of the film. It reminded me a lot about the uh, a lot about the of of the dwarf on Don't Look Now, which is. Uh, a horror movie, and that's what I mostly was, was thinking when the little monk appears. And I can't actually figure out what the hell was the little monk's function in the movie, or what the hell was actually going on in the beginning of the movie. Like we have in, in the beginning, we have the most complicated setup a man can ever have, just so that he can grope some lady's ass. <laughs> Yeah, I, I and did. then then the little monk makes a reappearance at the very end of the film, and when he he shows up at the train platform and is waving at our main character, they they don't know each other. The little monk does not know what the main character is, has never seen, but there he is. He's he's waving goodbyes to the main character. Yeah, I was watching one analysis of this to figure out what the heck is going on with with this plot point with the with, with the little monk. And it, well, it turns out that the little monk in the end could be like a little Maradona, some kind of a symbol of perseverance. After all, the title is the hand of God, the, related to the goal that Maradona uh, did by hand in 1983 in some tournament uh, for those people who care about football. And yeah, so it turns out that uh, San Gennaro, the creepy guy in the car and coaxing the lady into that ass crapping <laughs> meeting. It's also Maradona. <laughs> uh, he's a reference to re- religious stories, folklore and mythology in Naples. And that San Gennaro apparently was a patient saint of Naples, respected by 
the people of the town is seen as a very respected protector of the community, kind of a powerful champion and universal helper. And that's so why is the, is the film trying to say that religion uses Maradona to grope women? You know, I've told you these themes are really confusing. Cohesive narrative would be nice in a way. It's too much to your own interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like I said, the reason why I was so crazy about the film on the first go, at least, was that I guess I was in a that kind of a state of mind, just remembering how things have happened to me and how I feel that I don't really belong particularly anywhere. That's what I got the most about the film. Being in Poland, being in Spain, and now the kind of detached about Spain as well. Yeah, and that's what I felt that the character was going through. There had been some happy moments, feelings and community and friends around you, and then all of a sudden that all changes. It's kind of from my from my book. But yeah, Maradona is the little monk, and San Gennaro is as grabbing saint of Naples. <laughs> <laughs> so so Maradona helps creepy old men to grope women. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, now I got it. Good. To, good. Good to have that one cleared out. And slips money into their purse to help with fertility. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I tried. My brain was frying when I was trying to understand that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the ghost of Maradona. If you ever listen to this episode, please, please, go <laughs> uh, to our Facebook page and. and Send us a comment how often you slip women's purses after creepy old men have been groping them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hey, well, what about all, all the innuendos? Not even so much innuendos, but the, the negative comments towards disability and weight. <laughs> the, wh the whale has submerged. <laughs> Happy summer, summer memories. All together in one. <laughs> and, and you, 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 like, like, I, I can't make those comments anymore in, in modern Finland. Yeah, I was quite shocked. Yeah, ha 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 ha. <laughs> and, and a fat guy lady's with... fat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and an older guy with the, how do you call it, voice box. That was super funny in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly uncomfortable. It it was sad bit. Uh, I I was perhaps a bit more distracted by the, the the way how basically every every female gets gets treated in the film. But yeah, I I did also take pay notice, especially to the fat shaming that happens in the film. And once again, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's it's true that when it comes to body positivity, when it comes to like facing people with disabilities, the 80s were less defined times than what we are living now. So, of, of course, with those attitudes, and with, with especially with all, all, the, all the fat remarks that get thrown around, yeah, they, they are something that did happen and did exist on 80s. So, they are, like, they are believable and kind of an acceptable depiction of how the times were back in those days. At the same time, it's also a good sim uh, indication of exactly like the, the little ways that we also have come forward from the 80s. 
and perhaps a bit more considerate and a bit more civilized. Yeah, true. Yeah, there's a lot of emotions in the film. You kind of cramp them up into the first hour and you kind of fall through the floor into this grief. But yeah, there's a mixture of things that kind of try very, very, very hard for the audience to identify with the film. And I'm not saying that these things didn't happen. Like I listed a bunch of adjectives. Uh, sorry, Zach. Adjectives. Pain, pleasure, laugh, joy, beauty, ugliness, rudeness, obsession, love, hate, death, grief, shame, lust, abuse. They're all there. So, yeah. What about the speaking of... <coughs> how should I describe this? Joy. Signora Maria crying in the elevator. And all these <laughs> completely unexpected hysterical moments, rather. Drawing a dick on the elevator mirror at the time of grief. I, I mostly... Uh, that, that's one, once again, once again, when it comes to, you know... How, how people with disabilities were treated in the 80s. And, well, well, we are partly, once again, in the yikes territory of things. Because the thing with Mario is that he... Looks like Super Mario. Looks like Super Mario and is autistic. Or something. He's on some type of spectrum. I'm not entirely certain what spectrum that is. But it's clear that he is on one of them. And... Once again, with, with Mario also, Mario is kind of a character who doesn't really contribute into anything except he makes a couple of funny quotation mark scenes because, well, just like the way, the, how, how the fat is fat, you know, the retard is a retard. Maybe, but there's also another uh, unexpected moment after they have just heard that the parents have died in the carbon monoxide incident. Was it intentional or what happened there? Um, I, I took it that it was unintentional and it was a result of the fact that the goddamn dumb nuts parents did not know how to operate a fireplace. Like yeah. you're supposed to open the, like, like the slab that closes off the chimney. You're supposed to open that before you light the fire, uh, light in in the fireplace and i my guess is that since you know the, the family lived in a skyrise building they did not live in a in a private home they did not have a fireplace so the dumb nuts did not know this so then they light the fire and accidentally suffocate themselves right but coming back to the comical moments of the film yeah just after hearing the bad news there at the parking lot grieving there's this snobby little bastard the kids call him a fuckface and have a little bit of a un unexpected laugh about it so i think these comedic switches were <laughs> great fun and so unexpected the best laughs of the of the film and kind of brings the kind of the levity to the, to the film that we're dealing with these serious topics and then <laughs> you can just switch it should try that in real life just drawing dick pictures in elevator mirrors yeah that's a recommendation that does not come from on, on behalf of, of the podcast. Oh. Just putting the disclaimer out there. Oh, suit yourself. <laughs> okay, yeah. Vandalize public proper, uh, property <laughs> by drawing dicks. Yeah, yeah I'm going to well, skip that one, man. Yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha. Well, I don't know. Should it be the, the quickies then, or whatever they're called today? Well, special mention for an actor goes to... Well, from my end, it goes to drawing as a, as a visual style in filmmaking. Is that an actor? Yeah, I guess it is. 
<laughs> I, I don't know, that. that's my pick. To be honest, well, since we're doing our first documentary, well, I mean, I, I don't mean this in any negative sense, but freaking hell, I'm just gonna give it to Armin. Not saying that you're acting, bro, but well, well done performance. It's a performance, right? Can I say that? Yeah, certainly, why not? I mean, it is a film, still. Yeah. And there is yeah. voice acting and all that jazz. So. Yeah, well, let's give it to the animated version of Armin. Bring to attention some very small role in the film that you found somehow worth highlighting for whatever reason. It could even be an extra on screen for half a second performance, could be great, horrible, fun, odd, etc. It's teenage, teenage angst. It does not know where it's coming from, and it's not, it does not know where it's going. Right. I'm, I'm gonna give it to the, to the waves at the coast of Italy. Hitting a plank here. What resonated with you the most, the least? For me, it's the most, and it would have to be, and this is something that I will keep repeating tonight, it's the drawing style of Flea. I will give it to the smorgasbord of emotions of the hand of God. God damn it, you can't. Can't really easily grab this film and tell what's going on all the time. In one adjective, how would you describe these films? Memory, all alone in the moonlight. Yeah, I can't sing for shit, but it's memory. Yeah, I think that was one note. <laughs> I don't know if that was even half a note. <laughs> There's a reason why I don't do karaoke. And self-preservation <laughs> is precisely the reason. <laughs> it's not an adjective, but uh, memorylicious. <laughs> <laughs> I throw my hands in the air. Yeah, well, well <laughs> I, I don't know if that's even a word, but... <laughs> you, can you can now add it to Merriam-Webster. <laughs> Quite good in this panic, I must admit. <laughs> a favorite quote. I don't actually have one. <clears throat> from Flea, from the father, I believe. I'll make real men out of you when you get to Sweden. <laughs> I just had I, I was. I, I, I took the <laughs> film way too seriously to actually notice how stupid that sounded. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, had to do it. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's weird and speech deserve it. Do you think this film's have any staying power, power legacy? Uh, I, I do think that Flea will have. It, it's partly the legacy will come with, you know, everybody drawing comp uh, comparison to, to was with Bashir and Bashir being uh, such of a well-known name. So Flea will have a legacy in somewhat of a mirror piece of, of Bashir. I believe that. When it comes to Paul Cole Hellho, Coelho, Hellhole? Hellhole? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the man enough to actually be able to answer this question. He might have, like the director might have a legacy. And it might be, this must be the, be the place and, and the eternal beauty or what, what was the another hot ticket film. Uh, who knows? Maybe Hand of God will also. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have. But I'm not certain. I'm not certain the least. Yeah, Hand of God, probably not Sorrentino's best work. For, maybe it was too autobiographical for its own good, in a way that the inter interpretation is all yours. What was the question again? Staying power, legacy. Yeah, maybe the Hand of God, not so much. And I would even say the Flea, not so much. 
because it's going to be shadowed a bit by other similar products. Well, put the films in order of preference. And that makes no sense, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of a pointless question, kind of obvious at this point of today's episode, but yeah, it's it's Flea and it's the Hand of God. Yeah, I gotta agree with you. I gotta agree with you. Okay, complete some sentences. You really know you're watching the films. When? When you realize that Rome is just full of assholes because an old man told you so. When you are looking for home. <laughs> that didn't have any good joke in it. But did you like the films? I did like Flea quite a lot. And I was okay with The Hand of God. I I didn't like... I, I want to stress this out. I don't hate The Hand of God. I... I Today, uh, from the two films that we have been talking about, I have been most critical of The Hand of God. But I'm not like... I'm, I'm not jo- uh, uh, joining the, the naysayers, the, the complete naysayers, who say that the, the film is gar- garbage and absolute trash. But I'm also in no way blown away by it. Like I said, it's for me, it's, it's two and a half star, three at most. It's a movie that once we hit, hit something like the 150th episode, if you're gonna ask me, like, what's my take on The Hand of God, I'm gonna ask, like, what film was that? Mm-hmm. Not gonna remember the movie, most likely in T-X episodes. Well, that's the straight version of Call Me By Your Name, man. <laughs> I do say Call Me By Your Name had more of a plot and had more of a character's that did interact both physically and and emotionally with things in the plot. For those people who are confused about that comparison, well, I think it's pretty clear in the presentation of the idyllic location and the, so that kind of a perfect paradise. Yeah, and both films have a character that sticks his dick in a peach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mentioned it. Did I like the films? Yeah, I did like both of them. Yeah. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Would you watch these films again? Yes. I most likely will be checking out Flea at some time. Perhaps even showing it to to others. Uh, not not an obvious one. Like I'm not guaranteeing that. Yeah, I'm gonna put uh, put it into DVD player whenever I have host guests. It's not like it's not like Apocalypse Now or Blade Runner or or some other films that are like. I'm going to really push that everybody would, would see these films at least once in their lifetimes. But uh, perhaps in, in some discussion, I may like, like show Flea. Most likely, I will be checking it out a second time with the hand of God. No, no. One, times, one time is enough for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So would I recommend the films? I would recommend the films. Ooh, several words of caution with the hand of God. It's, it's, I don't think it's for everybody. Even to some extent, I'm surprised that we're even discussing these films in this episode as like an Oscar nominee out of all the shortlisters. There were some interesting stuff there, but all right. All right. Try it. Try it. Flee. Yeah. But w- would this really, Henrik, be the kind of films that you just go to a body on the street? Like, yeah. Yeah, watch this. Flea, yeah. If you're into this whole Oscar phenomenon, then I guess so, yeah. 
uh, maybe not so wild about recommending these. Not to say that they are not great films in their own rights. Yeah, uh, free. Uh, in fact, when you compare these two films, free last la- lasts for ninety minutes, and the hand of God is something like over two hours, or like yeah. two hours and eleven minutes, or something like that. And free manages to have more character and tell more story in the ninety minutes than what hand of God can do in over two hours. Well, that at least was was my experience with the film. And when it comes to like like if we would like throw in our two cents, like make make our predictions on on how the Oscars will go, I would say that Flea does have a higher chance of winning the Oscar. I'm not gonna say that Flea is a certified winner, especially since I haven't yet seen the the three other nominees. But from these two, I would say that Flea is is more certainly gonna win Oscar. I, I don't I just I don't see Hand of God winning winning the Oscar. And if it somehow turns out that yeah yeah that the statue goes to Hand of God, in that case I, I must say that I don't agree with the academia. Right, that would be kind of a wild card in my books as well. Okay, so we've we've covered uh, two out of five of the best international feature nominees. Yeah, for example, South Korea was dropped this time around. Uh, but uh, Drive My Car has gotten a, a hell of a lot of praise. It seems like it's it's the the one that people are praising at the moment, and uh, that's probably the the winner if you ask from the general audience. We'll see. We've got Drive My Car, the worst person in the world. And Lunana, a yuck in the classroom to go through. What did you think, dear listener? Come and comment on our socialistic media pages, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Where's our next adventure taking us, Henrik? Yeah, it might be, you know, the rest of of the Oscar nominees. In the case that we actually can somehow manage to get our hands on the, on the, re- the remaining three movies. We'll, I, I guess we see in the fortnight. Yeah, so is there anything else you want to add or is it time to close the memory books? I, I think we, at least for the time being, we can close or close the memory books. As hard as CGI effects closed on Cats, the musical film. Yeah, and what did you think? Leave us once again the message on the social media and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps others like yourself to find our podcast. We've also started a Patreon a while ago now. Head on over to patreon.com slash theflicklab to support us there. Lots of great content and opportunities to help us out there. For example, there will be the episodes that we release about one week uh, in advance and we'll be releasing some more extra content in the future. You can send us feedback the old-fashioned way, I suppose, lab at theflicklab.com. You can follow me on Twitter, and if you can get my handle correctly, if you can write my name correctly, good luck with that. Henrik, where can people find you? People can find me from the memory... Yeah, I still can't sing for shit. <laughs> right. Our theme music created by Nick Rival, editing by me. Uh, yeah, that's the package for, for today. Hope you enjoyed, and see you in a fortnight. Until then.
Yeah, ha 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 fat ha 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 ha